welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus, our brand new subscriber section. That is exclusive for members of Counterpunch. If you support this media project, you get access to some of the best writing anywhere on the left online. All of the great columns that used to be in the print magazine, they're all available on CP+, including a lot more stuff. Uh, We've had book reviews, we've had investigative pieces, essays, cultural criticism, a lot more. Go to Counterpunch, get yourself a subscription, become a supporter. I've been a supporter for years, well before I was a contributor at Counterpunch. And so uh, I would just make that plea once more as I do before every episode. And of course, I would also uh, remind people, if you like my work, you can support me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Eric Dreitzer. A lot more political analysis, international affairs, commentaries, and so forth. Um, Turning to my guest today, I'm so happy to speak with her. I've been looking forward for weeks now. Uh, Ruth Hopkins is with us today. Ruth is a Dakota Lakota Sioux writer and indigenous defender. She is a contributing editor at Atmos Mag, the website atmos.earth. She's a contributor at Teen Vogue, Al Jazeera, a number of other publications. Really important voice for everyone to be following. Ruth Hopkins, welcome to Counterpunch. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for coming on for all of your great work. I want to immediately jump in with you and talking about Biden and the Biden administration and what this Biden administration means for Native people. This is sort of the general question I've been leading off almost every episode for the last couple of months here. What is what does Biden mean for uh, you know a given community? But I think indigenous people specifically have a range of issues that need to be discussed. So what does the new administration mean for native people? Well, um, simply it means hope. Um, Biden actually wasn't uh, most of Indian country's first choice. Um, if you look across reservations and tribal communities and among Um, reservations and such. Uh, Actually, Bernie Sanders was kind of the favorite among Natives. But um, I think uh, for a lot of us, when um, Biden started becoming the front runner and it became apparent that he was willing to include us, and he, um, he made some promises, which is, you know, from a Native perspective, always a risk because uh, the federal government is pretty much known for not keeping their promises to tribes and Native Americans. But, um, you know, we took that risk and so far it has paid off. Um, you know, first off, he took the pledge to put a stop to the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, his first day in office, he did that. He also said that he would include Native people in his administration and as a cabinet member. And I'm sure you've seen that. Uh, He's he's done that with the Secretary of Interior. Um, just yesterday, we saw that confirmation vote come through. So, um, you know, those are a few examples. Um, you know, COVID relief monies, um, his executive order that he signed saying that he is going to um, reestablish tribal consultation um, with everything that uh, concerns our ancestral lands. Um And that was a big deal considering what we've been through with the Trump administration. I think most people do not understand um, how under attack we were um, as uh, indigenous people of this land throughout the Trump administration. Um, It got to the point where we were worried about our survival. 
um, and, you know, the real possibility that he would have started terminating um, federally recognized tribes. So um, it, the situation really was dire, you know, and then you had the whole COVID crisis that came about in the last year and how that affected us and not just Trump, but Trump supporters um, throughout the states and how we were um, basically just trying to get through the year. And a lot of us didn't. So um, for us, you know, maybe Biden wasn't our ideal choice, but um, it's definitely a lot better than the alternative. Yeah, well, actually, you sort of preempted my next question, really, because the flip side of that coin is trying to assess what the Trump administration and not just the Trump administration's record in terms of policies and policy decisions and so forth, but also its influence on culture and other aspects of uh, uh, you know daily life, what the Trump administration's ultimate record and legacy is with respect to Native people. Well, I think uh, going back to what I was talking about at the end there with, uh, you know, COVID-19, I think um, that's going to be a big part of, you know, what he's remembered for, um, because we had a very real death toll um, because of COVID, and we've lost so many elders and actually younger people as well. And um, it's really devastated so many tribal communities. Um, you know, we've lost uh, family members, grandparents, people who are knowledge keepers, uh, fluent language speakers that we cannot afford to lose. Um, so I think that's going to be a big thing that he's remembered for. Also for his, uh, his attack on tribal sovereignty. Um, you know, like with his first few days in office, he decided he was going to force through the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone XL Pipeline, which we were at the time were in the midst of fighting um, on the ground. And so he made it clear from the get go that um, we were going to be targeted. And so, uh, you know, throughout that, you know, his decisions that he made as far as energy development, um, he also attacked uh, our healthcare system, our funding. Um, I'm not even sure he has a, a real grasp of what treaty law is, but he certainly wasn't, you know, a proponent of supporting or following through on treaty obligations. Um, the list is just unreal. And I think uh, for all people, um, it was very clear that he, he decided that uh, promoting hatred and division was going to be, um, you know, a part of his campaign. And natives were definitely under attack with that, um, you know, like the whole Pocahontas um, using that as a racial slur, um, <clears throat> making fun of the Wounded Knee Massacre, all of those things over the years. It was just, uh, you know, it was pretty apparent how he felt about us. And to what extent had that translate into uh, actions on the ground, hate crimes against Native peoples? Uh, do we have any data or anything like that in, uh, with regard to increases under Trump? I mean, we've certainly seen that uh, in other areas, but as with all things, Native people often get disappeared from these narratives. Yeah, and I think um, at this point, a lot of the incidences that happened are kind of anecdotal. Um, you know, but like just the general atmosphere of, you know, being against, you know, like uh, uh, Black Lives Matter and being kind of like pro, uh, I don't know if he ever said that directly, but pretty much like pr police brutality and, you know, them having the authority to do whatever they want. Um, that's definitely affected Native communities because, you know, Natives are actually 
um, killed and uh, brutalized by police at a greater uh, proportion than any other ethnicity. Um, so, you know, we've seen that. And there was also like reported incidences around reservations um, of Trump supporters um, verbally assaulting or otherwise Native people. Um, there was also a the, the whole situation with the COVID checkpoints um, with the Cheyenne River Sioux tribe, where um, early on, you know, with the COVID crisis, they established checkpoints to try to protect their most vulnerable members. And um, what happened with that is Governor Nome of South Dakota, who is a very, you know, um, fanatical Trump supporter, I guess you would say, um, she even campaigned for him during all this, but um, she, basically threatened the tribe that they needed to remove the checkpoints. Um, and so, you know, that was another attack on tribal sovereignty. And then you had a whole situation where the Trump administration um, reportedly threatened to pull their uh, law enforcement funding and also uh, COVID relief if they did not remove the checkpoints. And that actually went to court. Um, so, you know, it's just multiple situations like that, you know, on the whole um, inviting everyone who would come to Sturgis, which is, you know, the Black Hills is still Lakota land and uh, inviting them to Rushmore for a, a maskless Trump rally. Um, all of those things, it was basically just attacks against us um, here in South Dakota. And around all of these events, we faced the fallout of, um, you know, the spread of COVID and the protest at Rushmore um, where Nick Tilson and others were arrested, and he's still facing 17 years um, over that uh, demonstration. So um, it's it's almost too much to name. But as far as like statistics, I don't think that's really been tabulated at this point. Um, maybe it will be. You mentioned it already, but I think it's important to note that the fight against the pipelines really has never stopped. But of course, in the uh, the second half of the Obama administration, the struggle against the Dakota Access Pipeline and that whole uh, occupation, Standing Rock, all of that was really kind of a seminal moment, especially for many of the activists that we have spoken to over the years who were there or who were supportive of that. But here we are just several years later, and the situation uh, has changed in some ways and yet is the same in many others. So can we get a little bit of an update? I know that Biden canceled the Keystone XL pipeline on day one, as you already mentioned, but we still have line three, the tar sands, the Dakota access situation. Can you help us uh, parse through where we are today? Well, those are, are all up in the air. Um, and the Dakota access pipeline is currently operating illegally. Um, so, you know, in my mind, as someone who has been a tribal attorney and a former tribal judge, it's insane to me that it is still being allowed to, um, to operate because according to the federal uh, court decisions, they are not in compliance with NEPA and, um, it's still, uh, I guess they're still deciding if they should force them to shut down until they fulfill their obligations of the uh, the um, new uh, environmental review. So um, that's where we're at with that. Um, four tribes, uh, Standing Rock, Shine River, the Oglala, and I believe Yankton, um, they wrote a letter to Biden asking him 
to go ahead and shut it down. Um, you know, of course, ultimately we would like it shut down permanently, but, you know, but for the time being, we think they should at least um, follow the law, you know, follow their own laws and shut it down until the review is completed. Um, and there's also a group of youth from the area that are running um, a letter to Biden, to the White House. And they, they already did that. Um, and I believe they're also including line three with that. Um, but, you know, unfortunately, even though it's starting to, um, I guess, become more accepted by the mainstream that we need to get away from fossil fuels, we're still going to be dealing with pipelines for a while. There's something, I don't know if it's ironic exactly, but certainly noteworthy about the fact that the struggle uh, against uh, Dakota Access, for example, really reached its peak in the Obama years when many of the same individuals who are now back in power under Biden were in positions of power, literally many of the same uh, people. So there is something to be said for wanting to put hope into the situation after the disastrous nightmare of Trump, and at the same time sort of tempering that hope, knowing that many of the people in charge are the same bastards as before. Absolutely. I think uh, the difference is um, the Democrats that are, in, that are in power, just like Obama, pay attention to uh, what's going on in the public eye, and they are open to being swayed. So we have uh, individuals who we can at least talk to and who are willing to come to the table and, um, you know, versus what we were dealing with Trump, which it, that administration in some aspects, it almost felt like outright, outright war against our communities. Um, they were just determined to shove things down their throat, you know, irregardless. And so at least, uh, you know, with the Biden administration, we have uh, an opportunity to reason with them. And so, you know, as that's as much as we can hope for at this time. Certainly. Now, um, to finish up that point about uh, pipelines and, and uh, that issue generally, one of the things that I've always wanted to discuss with people on, on this subject, I think is under uh, examined, is what it means to be a water protector for uh, Native peoples, what that actually means. We hear that phrase, for those of us who follow activist news and so forth, you know, we heard the phrase water protectors a million times, but I think most of us probably don't stop and really think about what that actually means. Can you help us to understand what it means symbolically, what it means, what it means about uh, Native people, about women, Native women, uh, those type of issues? Well, at its most basic level, I think it's an understanding of the importance of water and that we cannot live without it. And the, you know, the realization that we have uh, limited resources and limited water supply, especially fresh water supply. And knowing that we are, we must protect it. And I think with water protectors, they feel a calling to protect it. So it's more than just that awareness, but putting action behind it and putting words behind it. And, you know, I think there's levels too, just like with anything, um, you know, like the very serious uh, spiritual water protector is willing to put their life on the line to, to protect water. And they understand the significance of it. They see, um, they see protection of water as being worth it being worth, you know, paying the ultimate price because, um, I mean, we, we can't survive without it. 
if we want future generations to be born and to exist on this planet, we have to save it. And I also always found it inspiring that when we think of water protectors, certainly uh, within you know native symbology, it's associated with women, with 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 mothers and with women. Yes, I think that's a part of our spiritual teaching as well. Um, speaking as from someone who's Oshati uh, Shakoi, who's uh, you know Dakota and Lakota. Um, that's part of our teachings that we grow up with, and um, we traditionally are, are taught, um, you know, women um, have this capability to have this whole water environment inside their body and, um, you know, in the womb and to create life. And so, you know, we know water is life because it, it happens inside our bodies. Um, and so we have that special connection to the water. And we also have ceremonies, too, that are um, very concerned with water, you know, like the sweat lodge, an EP ceremony and sun dance. Um, they are very concerned with um, um, the sacred nature of water. Yes, indeed. OK, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit about uh, green energy, about extractivism, about what green energy and a green future means for Native people, for the land. Um, I also want to talk a little bit, uh, we already kind of touched on COVID, but delving a little bit more deeply into COVID, its impacts and uh, where we go from here with vaccines and so much more. I want to cover that and, I'll, and a lot more with Ruth Hopkins on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. chatting with Ruth Hopkins here on Counterpunch Radio. Uh, you should follow her on Twitter at Ruth underscore H 
Hopkins, an absolutely essential follow on Twitter. Um, so Ruth, I want to uh, pick up our conversation and talk a little bit about well, about what it means to be green and about green energy. We hear so much about green energy and, uh, you know, thinking of, of the future as being bright so long as it's green. And yet I don't think we really ever think through the implications of what green energy means. And I know that you've written about this, others have written about this, about what it might mean for native people. So can you speak to a little bit to this issue and some of the downsides of so-called green energy? Sure. For us, green energy is about sustainability and balance uh, and harmony. So um, that's actually where we conflict a little bit with some of the new ideas that are coming out with green energy, um, because we, we do want to get away from fossil fuels, um, you know, like the fracking and the pipelines and, um, you know, strip mining, all of those things um, that are so detrimental to the planet and the environment. Um, so we want to get rid of those things and move to something that's um, healthy for the planet and that is uh, sustainable and that doesn't um, rely solely on um, finite resources um, and wastewater. A lot of these things waste a lot of water. Um, but at the same time, we also have to be aware of how um, these new sources of energy affect the environment as well. Um, because you know, it might um, it might fare better for you know the land, but in another case, it might detrimentally affect um, local indigenous or wildlife. Um, all of those things, and we have to consider how uh, like environmental racism can come into play. About where is this occurring? Where are these resources being developed? Um, you know, is it fair and just? So um, there is the possibility that even while pursuing green energy, it could still go awry um, and indigenous people could still be negatively impacted. Um, the big example I'm thinking of is what happened in Bolivia, um, where there was um, an ouster of Evo Morales, who is an indigenous um, leader. And basically a dictator was installed. I think she's in prison now. I know she was <laughs> recently, but, um, and during that process, um, you know, it boiled down to lithium. They have a lot of lithium down there and who had control, who had control of the lithium and, you know, for batteries and such. And so, um, the United States was involved in that coup. Um, and there was massacres of indigenous people. And so, you know, that's a good example of how, even though it's in pursuit of green energy, it could still um, result in further indigenous genocide and um, further harm the environment. Um, so unfortunately, you know, even though we might be moving towards green energy, we still have to think about the system that we're in, um, you know, with the capitalism and the greed and the extraction, um, you know, that's... For example, the Amazon um, is just literally being killed, um, not only from um, the logging industry and the mining, but you also have uh, farming going, down, going on down there and ranching <clears throat> to produce more beef. And uh, in the meantime, indigenous people are being um, 
you know, forcibly relocated, they're being killed. Um, and really what they're serving is, uh, is protecting the forest. So um, I guess in all of these ways, you know, we just, we have to be aware of the big picture. You touched on it already a little bit, but I think it's worth uh, repeating and maybe going into a little more detail about COVID and what COVID has really done uh, to Indigenous people, because this is, although it's, you know, it's one of these stories that's been reported here and there, and there has been some decent coverage of it. But again, as I've already said, it's somehow we we managed to erase Native issues from our broader national discourse. And so what is the real impact of COVID? Obviously, uh, the positive, you know, the positive numbers are higher per capita uh, in Indigenous communities. We know that the outcomes are worse. We know that. Um, but as you already alluded to, there are other costs uh, of COVID, including the loss of elders, the loss of knowledge, irreplaceable losses. Can you speak to that a little bit further and uh, what that actually means and how that will ultimately impact these communities in the long term? Well, um, I, I want to start off by talking about how uh, tribes and uh, Native communities have been negatively impacted by COVID and why. Um, I We are always going to be more negatively impacted from any of these issues because we are already starting, um, we're starting with uh, detriments, um, you know, extreme poverty, a uh, lack of healthcare, a lack of employment, um, living in food deserts, all of these things exacerbate um, the issue. So when COVID hit, we were concerned because we already know that we have a lot of people with pre-existing conditions. We already have um, a lot of people with diabetes. Um, that, you know, diabetes basically started out because of the rations that we got from treaties and we weren't allowed to hunt anymore. So, um, you know, and we were also not allowed to gather beyond our reservation. So, um, you know, going clear back to the 1800s, um, that's when we started having a lot of issues with diabetes and, um, and uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't natural to us. And so, we knew we had all of these pre-existing conditions, which is why tribes tried their best to buckle down right away. You know, we had the COVID checkpoints, we had mask mandates, but it's hard when you're living, for, for example, in South Dakota, um, you know, you're living on these little islands um, surrounded by anti-maskers, you know. So even though we might have mask mandates and we might have closures, um, we don't have a lot of our own businesses. So eventually tribal members have to tribal travel off res, you know, to get their food supplies, um, you know, run whatever errands and stuff that they have to do. So, um, you know, th that exposure was almost inevitable. So um, I just wanted to bring that up as, you know, first, um, as far as why we were so hard hit, you know, like, um, it varies somewhat, but, you know, like, I've heard like two to three times um, natives were more likely to be infected and to die from COVID. Um, so, you know, we have been seriously impacted and it's really hard to explain to someone who hasn't lived it just how severely we have been impacted. Um, we've lost so many elders, um, fluent speakers, uh, people who carried our knowledge and that were teachers and they are irreplaceable. We're not going to get them back. And so, um, 
you know, they're gone. We had, you know, spiritual leaders, medicine men, um, people who were like leaders in the community. Um, and also family members, you know, my father died of COVID, um, Thanksgiving. So, you know, I've, I've been touched personally. I've gone to a lot of funerals. Um, we've lost so many relatives and it's, it's changed our communities forever. And, um, you know, luckily we do still have some fluent speakers, but there, there were some things that we're not going to get back because of this. And, uh, it's, it's sad, but it always, it also makes me mad to be honest. You know, um, there's people who could have done something, um, to prevent this and they did not. And, um, there is, there seems to be, you know, some evidence that it was purposeful, um, that people were sacrificed. Uh, and, you know, I, I wonder sometimes if it doesn't rise to the level of criminal liability, you know, um, dereliction of duty um, by some of our so-called, you know, state and federal leaders. So uh, we're, it's, it's going to be remembered, you know, just like we remembered um, the smallpox uh, epidemics that ravaged our communities and wiped out so many. Um, we will remember COVID as well and all of the people that we lost. And, you know, it's just uh, even day to day, you know, it's like we're in a constant state of grief um, in our whole community. And, uh, you know, you will um, be thinking about someone, oh, I should talk to this person or I should visit this person. And then you'll remember that they're gone. Um, and that's, happens all too frequently. So, uh, you know, the, on the upside, um, Indian Health surprisingly has done a great job of vaccination. So um, a lot of the people I know have at least received their first dose, including myself. Um, so um, there is hope in that aspect that maybe we've passed the worst of it, I hope. Um, and they've done such a good job at vaccinating that now they are vaccinating um, some non-tribal members. And that varies by tribe. You know, it depends on how well they're doing. Um, some have opened it up completely. Others are just doing like non-Native uh, family members, um, you know, and like healthcare providers and such. So, but um, that's one positive that I can say about it. Can you speak to some of the policy issues and concerns that Native people now will be looking to the Interior Secretary to address. Obviously, Deb Holland's uh, appointment is historic in many ways. I don't think I need to uh, summarize for everyone the importance of uh, a, a, a person of Native heritage in that position after all of these generations. But let's talk about the specifics here because the symbolic meaning of that is one thing, but the practical uh, policy decisions that need to get made is another. So what are some of the issues that uh, Secretary Holland is going to be hearing from her, uh, maybe not constituents, but uh, you know, tribal people all over, all over the United States about? It definitely is historic. And it's worth celebrating. I know so many people who celebrated um, her confirmation yesterday, and I believe she's being sworn in tomorrow. So it'll be another exciting day for us. Um, and I know that people have high hopes. They, um, 
They hope she's going to do a lot of great things for Indian country and Mother Earth. And I think she will. But at the same time, I think we need to tamper or temper our um, expectations of um, what she's going to be able to do because she still is working for the federal government and she still has to follow their laws and rules and regulations. And I think she'll do great at that. But that does put some limitations on what she can do. Um, right off the bat, I hope she will do something about Oak Flat, which is a sacred site in, uh, uh, in her homelands, actually. Um, it's sacred to the Apache people. And um, if you've been keeping up with it, um, this started with uh, John McCain several years ago um, when they decided to turn over um, the Oak Flat area to Rio Tinto which is a foreign mining corporation who has a bad track record um, with indigenous sites. And uh, so the Apache tribe has been fighting this for some time. Um, and recently they did pull back and they're going to give tribes a chance to explain to the Biden administration why it should be saved. So um, it's off the chopping block right now, but it's not a done deal. So I hope she will do something about that. I also hope that she will work towards putting more land back into the control of tribes and indigenous people, um, not just for honoring the treaties, but because um, studies have shown that native people and indigenous people actually all over the world, um, <clears throat> when we are put in charge of managing land, the land, uh, thrives and the creatures that live there thrive. You know, it's good for the ecosystem. It's um, helps prevent global warming and climate change. So, um, you know, it's not just about honoring the treaties, but it's also about protecting the environment. And that's ultimately what she's there to do is uh, to protect natural resources. And I know she understands that. So I think she's going to be more willing to work with tribes and in a partnership, you know, um, nation to nation, like it should be. So I'm hoping she will do that. And I am I know she understands the dangers of fossil fuels. So I'm hoping she will help us in that area too. And I wonder if um, most people, and maybe actually I should ask you to explain for us uh, how the government actually functions uh, relative to the tribal nations, because I think a lot of people have a vague notion of what the relationship actually is between the tribal nations and, and the U.S. government, but it's, it's, it's a somewhat complicated relationship. So can you explain that a little bit and what uh, Secretary Holland will have uh, jurisdiction over and what she won't have jurisdiction over? It's very complicated. It's a mess. <laughs> um, originally, how it started out was, um, of course, tribes that were here, we predate the United States. And so when the, uh, the new country, you know, the colonies formed and the United States um, started spreading westward, they started making treaties with tribes um, that they came across. And these treaties were in exchange for peace and for land and uh, access, like, you know, for travel, things like that. And so they made these treaties with tribes and they made a lot of promises, um, things like education, healthcare, annuities, um, 
for instance, with like with the Oshati Shakoi, um, our treaties had to do with we wanted our own patch of land. You know, like this is like the Black Hills. This is our sacred land. Leave us alone. <laughs> you know, that's what we wanted. And according to the U.S. Constitution, treaties are the supreme law of the land. Um, but unfortunately, um, from the get go, the federal government and Congress especially decided not to follow their own constitution. And so they unilaterally, unilaterally breached pretty much every treaty that they made with tribes. And so the, the Supreme Court, um, with as far as federal Indian law is concerned, they just try to make it work. Um, and so that's why it's such a mess. And they started out by saying, okay, well, tribes only have the ability to occupy land. They can't own land. And that was so settlers could have the land. And um, they also decided that we were going to be wards of the United States. So um, it was this weird um, dichotomy, I guess, of, yes, we're sovereign nations that have the ability to govern ourselves and our members and run our own business. But at the same time, we're also domestic dependent wards of the federal government. And so... A lot of the thing they've never fully followed through for one thing on their treaties, but a lot of the things that they do with tribes have to do with this relationship. So, um, for example, land on reservations, in a way, it's not really ours. It may be our ancestral land, but to the federal government, it's in trust. So they keep our land in trust and um, that, you know, that's led to huge loss of funds for tribes that was never really taken care of. There was the Cobell case that came out and helped rectify some of it, but it was never really, you know, sufficiently dealt with. And it's just been, you know, a pile upon pile of that type of situation, mismanagement of their, you know, their obligations or not fulfilling them at all. Um, so that's what she's walking into. I mean, she's walking into a department that was, you know, originally natives were under the Department of War. So um, when it was first established, um, the Department of Interior, it was coming from that. And their job was to either um, get rid of us or assimilate us. Because what happened in the 1800s when he had all these massacres taking place, you know, like Sand Creek, Wounded Knee, actually the media played a role in that because they started exposing that these things were happening. And so that's when they decided, okay, uh, you know, terminating all of these people looks bad. So we're going to start assimilating them. We're going to try to take away their culture and language and turn them into, you know, white people, basically. And so that's when he had the boarding schools that took all the children to teach them how to um, be like settlers. Uh, so Deb is walking into this and um, basically what she's going to be in charge of primarily is public lands. So, um, you know, that's a lot of land. That's a lot of responsibility. And what about questions outside of the land and the resources and the environment, questions of economic development, uh, social development? You mentioned all of the uh, socioeconomic problems that are associated uh, with uh, poverty and lack of access to, uh, you know, good quality nutrition and, and things like this. Um, to what extent does the Biden administration even have, um, you know, a way of addressing any of these issues or are they even on the table? 
Well, they definitely have an inkling of what's on the table. They have people in uh, their administration that are um, aware of the situation with tribes and what they're going through and the hard data. So um, I think they are, they are aware. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to address. There is a lot that they could do, though. Um, I think as far as economic development, uh, part of what they could do is be uh, just get out of the way or just like um, start stop micromanaging tribes up to a certain point, you know, like the whole taxation thing. Um, uh, besides gaming, the other thing that a lot of tribes are looking into now is um, the growth and development of hemp and cannabis. And um, like in South Dakota, this last election, it was actually approved by the voters um, for medicinal and recreational. But then the governor of South Dakota went to court and now we only have uh, medicinal marijuana. But we have tribes within the state that are ready to act on that. And that has the potential to be a good um, source of revenue besides just gaming. Um, and so, you know, I, there's people in tribes that want to do the work. They want to do the development. You know, there's people that um, in tribes that are working on things like um, ranching, um, buffalo, um, um, different farming practices, um, green energy, like you mentioned, like solar <clears throat> and wind. So there's things that we want to do that we need a little help, but, um, you know, maybe if they could uh, get rid of some of the red tape and move things quicker and work with us that way and be more encouraging and provide incentives, you know, that could help us a lot as far as economic development. For most people, uh, native, native issues, let alone native people themselves, are somewhat out of sight, out of mind. I think a lot of people don't ever encounter native people. They live you know, geographically far enough away where they might never encounter them. And so my question to you, the final question I have is, what can people who are in various ways uh, divorced from native issues and native people and native communities, what can people do to support native people and their struggles and indigenous resistance in its various forms? A lot of people have probably run into a Native person and not realized it because, um, you know, there is the stereotype of how we're supposed to look. But actually, um, Native is not a racial classification. Um, it's a political classification uh, that the government came up with because we all come from different tribes. We're multiracial. Um, you're you're going to run into Natives who are all colors, you know, um, different body types you know, colors of hair, eyes, whatever. And also uh, about 70% of natives live in urban areas now. So, um, you know, people have probably run into a native at some point, you know, at their school, in their community somewhere and not realized it. Um, so that's one thing. Um, as far as making yourself aware of native issues, I think social media can be a good help. Um, follow native, um, you know, native leaders, activists, writers, journalists, we're out there. Um, follow us on Twitter and, you know, other social media sites. Um, there's also indigenous media, you know, like Indian Country Today or Native News Online, places like that, where you can um, read more about the issues that affect us. And we are making our way into the mainstream. And we do have the internet now. You know, we have Wi-Fi and we can use Google and um, 
you know, hopefully people know enough, you know, a little bit about being wary of some of, you know, the knockoff stuff, but, you know, you can search for native news online, um, native organizations and um, find people to support. Absolutely. And here at Counterpunch, we always try to amplify these voices and, and to focus on these issues as much as we can. It's a, yes, so, yes, a it very is. important to all of us, of course. And um, Ruth, I want to thank you so much for all of your great work for joining us tonight and talking about these issues. Ruth Hopkins is a Dakota Lakota Sioux writer and Indigenous defender. Follow her on Twitter at Ruth underscore H. Hopkins. Uh, Atmos Mag is the magazine. Uh, her contributions at Teen Vogue, Al Jazeera, and other publications do put her into your regular rotation of sources that you follow. Ruth, thank you so much for chatting with us tonight. Wopila, thank you. And listeners, thank you as always, and we will chat again real soon. <laughs>